You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're in this series, and we'll, we'll come back to that topic in just a moment, um, called Exiles. It's a, a journey through the book of First Peter. If you're new here, we're usually moving our way through the books of the Bible left to right. And, um, and First Peter is about um, a message of the gospel to the persecuted church. Um, the church in modern-day Turkey that was losing their homes and losing their futures and their inheritances and their families were getting split apart. It's a, it's a, it's a letter to a people in a desperate and dire time of bad times that are going to get worse. And Peter, um, Peter tells them from the very beginning that it's not an accident where they are, who they know, or what they have, or what they don't have. They're elect. They're there on purpose. They're chosen, not by chance. And so therefore, he says, there's a blessing in being an exile because of exile knows whether you're rich or you're poor, and exile knows you're not really home until you're home with Jesus. And Jesus was homeless, or he said he never had a place to lay his head except for the Father, and he was always home wherever he went, and that's the promise. And so there's a blessing in being in exile, and that's, I think, the heart of what Peter's talking about. And so, um, and so he, he presents this third way. Psychologists say that when you get attacked and you're persecuted, the human instinct is fight or flight. There's only two different directions that you go. You fight back, you hit back, or you, 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 you back off, and, uh, and you take control, or you, you lay down. And, and, and there's only really two ways that humans do things, but, but heaven uh, in, the, in the body and the life of Jesus has a third way. It's good news. There's a third way. You don't have to just fight or flee, but Peter uses this language. We'll stand firm. That's what he says, that we might stand firm and know the third way of the exile, the way that knows that who's in charge isn't really in charge, and the one who's in charge is really the one who's really in charge of those who are in charge, and, and so there's a, there's a boldness, there's a firmness. It's not about my IQ or acumen or my, my resume, but it's about my the spirit inside of me, I could stand firm. I wouldn't have to fight or flee. I had a, um, I had a bully in high school. Did you ever have a bully? Sally, Jimmy, who was it? Roger, that jerk, you know, whatever it was. You still remember their name. And, um, and his name was Willie. And Willie would torment me. He just would just like a magnifying glass on an ant. He would just like, he picked me and he just hated me. And I don't really know why. I tried to be nice to him. And he just kept on. He shoved me up against a locker one time. My Tommy Hilfiger t-shirt just grabbed me and threw me up against the locker. You're a punk, Wong, you know? And he was only five feet tall. I don't know what was wrong with me. I wish I could go back in time and just, man up, dude, what's going on? I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was dating a sweet girl named Ashley at the time, and I think Willie liked Ashley a lot, and I don't think it went very well for me, and so he just picked on me. And, uh, and you know, you do that thing in your mind, like when you have an enemy, you, like, your mind starts to rotate around them, like when you're falling asleep at night, you're thinking about how you're going to say something back to them, or you're, like, you're planning the hallway trip so you don't have to run into them. You know, like I'll go to this lunch and I'll tell this person that I'm sick today and I don't have to show up and go see, you know, your, your life starts to orbit these people that antagonize you. You know, these bullies, they can be five foot tall, but they, they can really mess you up, you know, really mess you up. And um, so we live in a, in a time when the PC world, you know, we don't say enemy. Any, we don't say enemy anymore. Enemy is a, is a pretty, it's like a, it's, like a, it's like a dual kind of thing. Like, you know, Alexander Hamilton or something like that, where you like take 10 paces and turn around and shoot somebody like, you know, what if, you know, you unfollowed somebody and they're like, well, why'd you unfollow me? He's because they're my dire enemy, you know? They're my, what, arch enemy? They're my nemesis. And so I unfollowed him on Facebook, you know? We say, we say more padded answers these days, things like, you know, we're not getting along. We don't really get on the same page. We see differences. We don't see eye to eye. We don't use this word enemy, you know? Um, but the, the problem with it is, is that even if we try to avoid using the term enemy, it doesn't change the fact that enemies are unavoidable. As you know, we live in a broken world, and sometimes evil doesn't ever stop taking. It will take and take and take, and you can't appease that. You can't just let that go on because, you know, enemies will continue to take and take and take. And there are things 
to unify around, but there's also things to divide on. There are things worth dividing on, and love does not mean unity in all things, you know? It's unity with Christ is what love would mean, but not necessarily unity with all people. And so enemies are unavoidable. I hate to say that, but that's true. You know, we've domesticated the thing and postmodern the thing, but enemies are unavoidable. And um, there's always going to be a person when you go to Publix, if you saw him, your heart would just drop. You know that feeling? What are you going to say when you see that person again? Like, whoa. There's always going to be that person when, when they go hang out with a friend of your friend and you wonder what they're saying to the friend and you'd ask about the friend, what they said to you, you're always going to have that person. I don't care what you call it, a frenemy, you know what I mean? I don't know what, ambivalent relationship, it's complicated, I don't know what you call it. But just to change the word and the slogans and the slang doesn't change the concept. There will always be people that we are separated from, you know? And so, uh, you know, Jesus, he's got this annoying teaching. Have you heard this one? It's like, oh gosh, he just, it's the worst. Remember this teaching? What is he, remember that? He said, to love your enemy? Pray for those who persecute you, something like that? Man, that is annoying. It'd be so much easier if you didn't have to do that, Jesus, you know? And so, uh, how's it go? I'll read it to you. So Matthew 5, 43 through 48 says, you have heard it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, it's funny, it's actually not in the Bible. It never says to hate your enemy. Did you know that? It doesn't say that. Leviticus, Genesis, it never says to hate your enemy. We made it up. You've heard it said. It wasn't written, but you just heard it said. It's the thing that people say. It's the thing that people say. So uh, love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. You, You talk that way. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he send rain, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly uh, Father is perfect. So there's three things that I get out of that sermon. The first one is... Um, Jesus doesn't ask you if you have enemies. He just assumes that you do. Because the world's fallen and it's a broken place and there's people that you don't get along with and you can call them whatever you want, but they're not your friend. So he doesn't ask you, he just assumes and he's asking you what you're doing about that. The second thing is, is um, it doesn't seem to be a peripheral teaching. Like it's not a negotiable or something you might get along with at sometimes in some seasons. It's, it seems to be pretty pivotal. Like, he's saying that what, what makes us Christian is not how we treat our friends, it's how we treat our enemies. That's the line of scrimmage. Like, love begins at the point of conflict. At what, you know, when you come to that place when enemies and evil come towards you, that is defining the Christ-likeness in you. And so, so love is really tested in its perfection, not in front of your friends, but in front of your enemies. And then the third thing that I get from this is he uses these terms, reward and perfect, which really means that he's saying that loving of enemies... It's not something that we practice because it's productive, but because it's what makes us like the Father. It's what makes us perfect. Did you see that? He doesn't say, love your enemies to get a result. He says, love your enemies to get the reward. He doesn't say, love your enemies to be productive, to win them over, to win friends and influence people. He says, love your enemies because that's what your Father does. Uh, You could go on uh, Siri right now, and I looked it up yesterday. Um, in North Korea right now, it's 72 degrees with a 10% chance of rain. Pretty nice. Get some sweet tea, go to get a coffee and walk down the street in North Korea. Sounds like a fine time in Afghanistan. Same thing, 78 degrees, 0% chance of rain. Says the Father, uh, he brings rain and shine on the sinners and the saints. That's what it says. It says, to be perfect like your father is to be the same person in front of your friend as you are your enemy. 
That's what it's saying. To be like your Father in heaven is to be perfect. And it's to send rain and shine on, on friends and enemies alike because you're not responding to what they do, you're responding to who he is. And so what is he doing about this? Like, loving enemies is an ex- ex- excruciatingly uh, painful and exhausting thing. Like, toxic people are toxic people. They're always going to take. They take and they take and they take. And they're not going to, you ever notice this, right? They're going to take and they're not going to stop taking. And I just want my boundaries and I want my fence and I just, I don't want to go after that. I don't want to love my enemy. I just want to let go of him. I just want to, you know, just let it go. And Jesus is saying, that's not an option. It's not saying be part of abuse or succumb to iniquity or allow for or sin to happen or so forth. But he's saying as much as you can do, live at peace with all men and to practice perfection, not for results, but for the process of becoming like your father in heaven. And so what is the point? Why would he call persecuted Christians in Rome who have their neck under the boot of an imperialist Roman army, stealing their inheritance and splitting up their family, literally robbing them of their past, their present, and their future. And Peter's message is to love, not because it's productive, but because it's perfect, because it is the point. What is he doing in this message that Jesus is giving us, and Peter ultimately gives us as well, except showing us that loving our enemy is not really about them. It's about us. You see, the danger of an enemy is not what they can do to you, but what they can do in you. The danger of an enemy is the sleepless nights. It's the lost time. It's the inability to be present with future friends. The unforgiveness of enemies and the lack of love towards enemies is not on the stake and claim of what you're doing to them, but what they are doing in you. And not so much what they are doing to you, but ultimately what you are doing in response to what they do. That's really what's at stake, isn't it? Because Jesus says, what makes a man clean is not what comes towards him, but what comes out of him. And so the call to love enemies is not about them. It never was. It was about you and your Father in heaven. And so Peter's exile argument, it's almost like Peter was a follower of Jesus. He's just quoting Jesus left and right. How about that? And Peter has three arguments. We've been talking about this in the book of 1 Peter for why you would exchange good for evil. Good for evil is a hard thing, it's a painful thing, and sometimes it's not very productive. It'll make you look worse than you started from. Sometimes it won't go well. Sometimes it'll make things worse. Sometimes it'll make you more tired and angry and frustrated and won't be the kind of person that you want to be and so forth. But yet he still calls us to do it, to exchange good for evil and not to be productive but to be perfect. And there's three reasons why Peter gives us all throughout the, the letter. You can read it for yourself. And the first reason is this is that doing good to evil is a loud way to preach the gospel. When evil comes to a person's way and good returns for it, it is a loud message. It's the most expensive message, therefore it's louder, because everybody can exchange evil for evil, and everybody can exchange for good for good, but only Christ exchanged good for evil. So when people see that from an... um, a tactile standpoint versus a verbal one, they hear a message. They hear a loud message when they see good return for evil. The second reason why Peter uh, speaks about returning good for evil and the motive that we would have for it is this phrase that you'll see all throughout the book called likewise. Likewise, submit to the elders. Likewise, submit to the government. Likewise, submit and serve your master. Likewise, submit and serve your husband. Likewise, cherish your wife. Likewise, um, uh, submit and, 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 uh, to all governing authorities. And the likewise there is only meaning one thing. It's, it's, it's pointing you back to the why. And the why you exchange good for evil is not to win friends and influence people or change the world or do better than your parents did. It's because Jesus did that. 
And, 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 so, and so the motive becomes, can you, can you show me anyone that lived a better life than Christ? Then submit as he submitted. He grew up in diapers with 16-year-old parents and submitted to Roman authorities and submitted to pharisaical religious people. And he lived the best life that we've ever seen in this life. And so maybe we should likewise like Jesus. And so it's not about being conservative or being from the 1950s or just being, you know, a housewife or just being a good little citizen or because you're afraid of them or because you're passive or because you're weak. No, you're, you're living like Christ. That is your motive. That is the reason why. But out of all these, and we talked about it last week, probably the most important one and the one that Peter harps on and Jesus harps on as well is because ultimately it pleases the Father. It's the love language of heaven. To see his child return good for evil makes the, heart, the father's heart say, he must trust me. She must trust me in this situation. For the father to see one of his children, not because they're big or smart, or because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain, but because they want to be perfect like their father in heaven. They want to shine and reign in front of their friends, in front of their enemies. He says, that's my son. That's my boy. That's my girl. So there's no other thing that pleases the father than to live life before him, not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. That is the ultimate living sacrifice that we offer is to do good towards, towards evil and towards enemies. And that ultimately is Peter's argument. And so therefore, Peter's agenda today in this passage, as we'll get into it, is for you to make a decision. We, uh, uh, when I was in high school, um, did something called postponed sexual involvement. It was an abstinence program where the high schoolers would come over to the middle schoolers and have this really awkward talk about how they shouldn't have sex. And uh, me and Kyra both went over there and a couple other people and you went through the little multiple choice answers about should you hold hands or make, make out or whatever it is. And the whole premise was, it was a secular thing, but the whole premise was simply this. You've got to make a decision before you're in the moment. It's the whole idea, right? If you get in the moment and you try to make the decision for abstinence, when you have all the emotions and all the feelings and all the excitement that goes on in the romance, you won't be able to trust yourself and later's too late, so you've got to make a decision now. That was the whole idea. Draw the line in the sand right now. You can't afford to make a decision later because later's too late. Make the decision now. So what Peter is going to be doing in this, just to kind of lay it out there and just, you know, uh, kind of mix any false pretenses there, is, is he wants us to make a decision beforehand because, because evil is so intoxicating and contagious that if we wait till we are slapped on the cheek, it'll be too late for us to turn the other one. We have to make a decision now. In my heart of hearts to make this decision. You guys ever looked at history class um, during the civil rights movement? The sit-ins were a powerful, nonviolent vehicle for African-American and white students to sit in at Woolworths where there was segregation at the counters, and, um, and they would receive all kinds of uh, physical and verbal beatings for what they were doing, and, and it was the power of the television to show good return for evil to, to preach, I believe. And Martin Luther King was talking about Jesus. The nonviolent method, a third way of how to stand firmly against evil and oppression, and they didn't do it for the first time at Woolworths. They did it at the college first, they practiced, and they made a decision ahead of time. They practiced being called the N-word. They practiced getting smacked by a white person. They practiced having smoke being blown at their, their face because they know that if you had to make the decision too late, it's already too late. You've got to make the decision now. I'm going to be a good in the face of evil person. That's what Peter's saying. Deep in your heart of hearts, it has to be a decision before the Father. It won't be because you want to. It won't be because it's convenient or even because it works, right, or because it's productive, because it's perfect. And you have to make a decision now. I am going to be the kind of person that is ready to give the extra cloak, to walk the extra mile, right, to return um, good for evil. And so that's what 1 Peter um, 3 is all about. So we're going to get into it in verse 8. It says, finally, all of you be like-minded, says Peter. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Verse 9, and do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called 
so that you may inherit a blessing. So two observations I saw this week. And, and the first one is that as we make our way through 1 Peter 1 and 2, for the most part, the discussion is all about the outside world, how to respond to evil in the outside world. But if you notice in this passage, the language switches very quickly without even a transition, and he stops talking about the outside world, and he starts talking about the church. Did you catch that? The one and others and the brothers and the compassionate, right? So, so he's not just talking about a strategy for mission. He's talking about a strategy for life. He's talking about a strategy of all of our days. And not only that, the transition changes in the language up until 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2. He's been talking about good. He's been saying, do good. Do good to your neighbor. Do good that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven and all that kind of stuff. He's saying, do good. But if you notice, for the first time in this passage, he changes the word good and he, and he switches to the language of blessing. Did you catch that? Abraham language, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount language, blessing. Blessing isn't just man's good. What is blessing? Blessing is God's good. A man can't make a blessing. He has to receive a blessing, right? So God is the blesser, and that's the only way that blessing happens. So what he's saying is the transaction of doing good towards evil is not just man's good. It's, it's, it's God's good. So what is he saying in this first passage other than it's not just a, a matter of mission but a matter of wisdom and not just a matter of doing good for yourself, but it's ultimately good in a larger narrative? And what is he saying other than the fact that it's always time to do good? This is the good news about the exile blessing is that it's, it's for all, all spans of the IQ. It's for all kinds of people at all different times. I mean, how simple could you make this vision statement? How do you, how do you survive and thrive in a bad, upside-down world where enemies are unavoidable? Do good. Do good. It's always good to do good. It's always the right time to do good. You got something good to do? Do it. Don't wait. If you have an impulse to do good, you know it didn't come from evil, do it. Do good. That's the vision statement. It's as simple as that. Nobody can avoid that. You're not too smart for that. You don't have to argue your way out of that. It's that simple. When you're at church, do good. When they're good to you, do good. When they're evil towards you, do good. It's literally that simple. Do good. That's the message. How do you survive? How do you thrive in exile world? Do good. Follow the way of Jesus. And this is the blessing. This is a blessing to do good. It's an end to itself. So he starts to do a little dictionary work with us now, and he works us through an oldie but a goodie, okay? And that is uh, Psalm 34. He's going to quote David. And so I think what he's doing here is he's, he's saying it's not just do good now. It's, it's always been do good. It's do good all the time. That's what the idea was, the gospel is, is, is about. It is not being saved by works, but being saved for works, to do good works, right? That you have been planned in advance to do. So good works are good things. And so he goes back. He's like, from the beginning of time, well, let's, go back, let's go back to David. Let's take this, okay? And, and he starts to do some word work here, some interpretation internally in the text for what good and evil means, okay? So verse 10, whoever would love his life, says Peter, and see good days, that's blessing, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. So this psalm is arranged in a parallel. The psalm in the proverb often does this where it puts line one and line two as A and A. So you can interpret what he means by line one by looking into line two. So the pattern is AA and then BB. So take a look at this. So, so what do you mean by do good, Peter? Okay, well, or David. He says in verse 10, they must keep for their tongue from evil. Well, what do you mean by that? What is evil? This is what he says. And keep their lips from deceitful speech. So that's a parallel. It's just a connection that he wants to teach you the dictionary. Evil is deceitful speech. Then he hits you with the BB in 11. They must turn from evil and do good. So he gets to the good side of it, and he dictionaries this, Webster's this. They must seek peace and pursue it. Okay? So you see, AA, evil is deceitful speech, and BB is seeking peace and pursue it. 
How many guys are or have known or, or, or have been somebody who's able to smile at somebody in public and scorn them in private? How many of you have been able to smile at someone in public and say things about them to their face that you are not saying about them when they're not there, when you're just speaking to your spouse, when you're just speaking to your best friend, right? How many of you guys have experienced this before or done this in the last week or days, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deceit of evil. Evil sometimes looks good, but is evil, you see? Evil doesn't have a lightsaber. Evil is a divided heart. And it will say things about people in private that you wouldn't say things in public, and it says things in public that you wouldn't say about things in private. And the, and the Bible says as simple as this, that's not good. That is evil. That is evil. That's the essence of evil. Is it a divided heart that has no peace and fears man? Good, on the other hand, is a united heart. Teach my heart to fear your name, says the Lord, because the goodness of God is that the fear of the Lord frees me from every other fear. He is so fearsome in me, he makes me fearless. Because once I'm afraid of him, I can be afraid of no one else. Right? So wouldn't you rather be afraid of the one that loves you than afraid of everyone else? It's your decision. right? So, so evil is simply this. It's a divided heart. It's a heart that's always looking over its shoulder, it's always calculating, that's always posturing, that's always spinning, that's always has to be aware of their political spot in the, in the chain, and they are, they are maneuvering. That's the evil heart. That's what it means to be evil. It doesn't mean to be part of the, you know, the force. It means to be divided versus peace is a united heart that sits in the fear of the Lord. And so it goes on in verse 12, and this is where I think the blessing comes in, the warning and then the blessing. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Pay attention to the to the um, almost whimsical, poetic facial features of the Lord, okay, so that, that they're talking about here. It's the eyes of the Lord, like to a little child, or they're on the righteous. The ears of the Lord are attentive to prayers, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. A-A-B-B, and then a chiastic structure. If you fold the thing over, what's, what's happening? Watch, watch the scriptures, and, and I got a little chart there for you to see. He's saying, if you fold the psalm over on itself, that the eyes or on the tongue of the righteous. His eyes are towards you. He sees that, and, it's, and it blesses him. And for no other reason for doing good for evil, not because it's productive, not because it's expedient, not because it wins friends and influences people, not because it makes people come into the gospel, but because his eyes see it, we do good in all times. It's always the right time to do good, because he sees it, right? His ears, he hears the prayers. He hears the supplication, and he doesn't care if it's two pence or a widow's mite or a million dollars. Somebody that gives something that costs them something, and, and fears the Lord in front of their enemies, he says, that's my son and that's my daughter. And his ears are on your lips. He says his face, his face, are the, towards, his face is towards those who seek him. And so, so what is happening in this blessing other than he's inviting us into a life before him as opposed to a life before man. He sees, he sees your life. He sees when it's not working for you and you keep doing good. Actually, it's more sweet to him because it costs you something. His ears, he's not given up listening to you. He hears the cries of his people. Every time when God would rescue in the Old Testament his people, it would talk about the cries that would rise up to him. And it talked about how he would hear. God responds to what he hears, and he's, his ears are for the prayers of the righteous, right? And, and, and his, his face it shines like a countenance. And so what is, more, what is more important, what is more expensive than the face of God in your life? And, and what is more important than as we turn away from evil, we're not just turning from the face of evil, but we're, we're turning towards the very face of God. We're turning towards his very countenance, the one that made us. And so he does a little investigation here, and he digs a little bit deeper into verse 13. He says, you know, who is to harm you if you're eager to do good? And in other words, he's saying, a lot of times just doing good is a really productive thing to do. 
It's a great thing to do to have a 360 goodness in your life, to trust the Lord in all your days and lean out on your understanding. It's a really good idea. It's productive and actually will cause secular people to thrive. You know, goodness is a good thing no matter what, but especially the goodness that, good, that does good towards evil, okay? And sometimes it's fruitful and productive. But he says, listen, even if it's not profitable or even if it's not productive, it's always making you perfect because if you suffer for what's doing, doing what's right, you are blessed, which is better than pr- production. Blessing, the favor of the Lord, that the countenance of the Lord on your life is the most important treasured thing and you dare not lose it for any other price. So then he says this, let's get to the hardest thing, let's make a decision. Let's you and I do some calculations and make the decision right here and now to bless and not curse. This is what he says. Do not fear their threats, because here, let's, let's look a little closer at this. And do not be frightened. These two words, it's interesting as you break it in, because then he backs it up, this is the reference out of Isaiah. What the words actually mean is, is not just fear and fear their threats. A lot of the translations, you'll look down even in your notes, maybe in your NIV or ESV. It says, don't fear and then it says this, it says, don't fear what they fear. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Don't fear, and don't fear what they fear. He's thrown back, not just to David, but to Isaiah. It's on the screen in Isaiah chapter 8. This is where it comes from. Do not call conspiracy. You ever seen a conspiracy before? Conspiracy is this smoky, foggy evil that lurks and does something that you just can't see right in plain sight, but it's, it's in the air. You can feel it. That conspiracy, that political conspiracy, or even family conspiracy. Do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. Is there another passage? Yeah. And the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And so Peter's putting the spotlight on the fear thing, and, and he's saying to us, isn't the heart of all evil just basically fear? Isn't the heart of evil that if I come to my enemy empty-handed, he'll probably have a knife behind his back? So I better show it a gun with a knife fight, right? I don't want to be knifeless in a knife fight, so I'll bring, I'll bring my knife and I'm going to bring my gun to the knife fight. Isn't that how that evil works? It's the fear. Fear gets you first. But if he's like me and he thinks like me and acts like me because all men think and act like, alike, you know, this is what they talk about, then I don't just want to bring a gun to the knife fight because if my my enemy has a gun, I'm going to bring a, a tank. And he's like me, then he's probably bring a tank, so I better bring a bomb. And I'll, no, you know, you might bring a bomb, to a bomb to a knife fight. You know, this is the idea. Evil escalates. It never decreases. It's always escalating. It's always growing, and it's rooted in fear. And fear is a fog, but fog is dangerous because when we're not seeing clearly, we operate from a different motive. And so isn't that true? Isn't it true of you and for me that um, it's not until it's too late and the divorce lawyer runs off with all that money. And the husband didn't win. And the wife didn't win. They were trapped. It was a conspiracy of evil that got them, wasn't it? And it was two hurting people hurting people. Wasn't that what it was? Isn't this the heart of evil? That fear is the heart of evil? It's a conspiracy. It's a fog. It's two brothers. Oftentimes the people that you love the most hurt you the most and you hurt the most. And it's you yelling at them and pushing them and manipulating them that is actually more of a testimony of your love to them than your hate. Because if they were a stranger, you wouldn't care. But it's because you love them that you act evil because you're afraid of what they can do with you, do to you in that love. So isn't that what fear ultimately is? Is that I'm afraid that if I don't bring a knife to the fight, he'll bring a gun. And if I don't bring a gun, he'll bring a tank. And I'm not just worried about this person becoming my enemy. What I'm really worried about in my actions and pretenses is my enemy becoming a tribe. I'm, I'm worried that they're going to go talk to those people and get them on their side 
and I can't afford to have my reputation be put on the stand, so I'm going to go ahead and collect my tribe. And I'm going to tell my side of the story. How many of you guys have ever told your side of the story before? And you can hear it, and you can even hear some of your voice going, this isn't quite the full story, but I'm still on a roll here, and I'm going to go for clarity, right? That's the idea. Is I'm not just afraid of my enemy. I'm afraid of my enemy's tribe. And isn't that just what politics is? Because a tribe with enough people just becomes a party or a race or a denomination. Isn't that how evil works? It's a conspiracy and it's a trap. He says, don't fear and don't fear what they fear because it never ends. And all fear ever created was evil. And all that really matters is his eyes on your eyes and his ears on your lips, right? And his voice into your heart. And if that's happening, if the sun is shining and the rain is falling on you in that way to bless you and not to curse you and not to harm you, then what do you have to lose and what do you have to gain? So there's three Proverbs that I think that Peter equips us today with that we might make a decision today about what is true in the middle of these these lies, this fog and this conspiracy. And the first one, maybe you've heard it before, is this. It's it's Proverbs 29.25. I bless you to just hear this and really, really let it Go down to the foundation of what you really think about yourself and think about the people next to you. But Proverbs says that the fear of man is a trap. Isn't that true? The fear of man is a trap, and whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. In other words, it's not until it's too late, till the fog clears, that you realize that you were cutting your brother. You were attacking an enemy that was bought by the blood of Christ and might become a family member. And so when the fog clears, you have nothing but regret. You could have rejoiced, but now you regret because you brought a tank to somebody that didn't even have a gun. And it's a trap. And it takes your life. It takes your peace. It takes your sleep. And it wasn't about them. It was about you and him anyways. And so you sold your inheritance and soul for, for a bowl of soup for a little satisfaction to really rub something into somebody. And you thought maybe you had won in the court of public opinion, but you lost You fell for the trap. And it wasn't about them. And you didn't earn anything about it anyways because you had everything you needed. And the second thing that Peter wants you to know is that the only liberty that we have from the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. You can't just stop fearing men. You have to fear the Lord. You have to really believe that his eyes on your eyes is the only thing that matters. You have to make that decision in your heart today that people can't see the angel armies that are surrounding your enemies, but you are outnumbering them. They're not outnumbering you. Anybody with the Lord is outnumbered, is outnumbering others, right? That's the idea. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, and so it is the only solution. And this is probably my favorite one out of the three promises that you might be equipped with today. But that is Proverbs 3.24. Proverbs 3.24 says that when you lie down, you will not be afraid if you fear the Lord, because you're going to sleep good. Did you know that people that fear the Lord sleep good? Do you know that when you fear man, you never sleep? Always anxious, always calculating, always posturing, always thinking about what the next thing is going to do and what the next move is. You know what people that are even dumb and ignorant can just have peace about and sleep? Unlike somebody that's wrapped up in the conspiracy of evil, people that fear the Lord sleep so good because they just do good. And that's all they have to do is do good. And all they're expected to do is do good. And they know that they're not going to gain or lose or anything else if they just Decide in their heart to do good as Jesus did towards evil. That's the idea. And so that's the idea is that the fear of man is a trap, but the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and therefore the sleep of the righteous is sweet. And that's the promise. That's how you're equipped to, to, to face God in the face of all different kinds of evil. And so what Peter is getting to here in this passage, he says, 
Who is going to, or excuse me, he says, always be prepared. And this is what he's saying, the call to action, to be prepared. Be prepared. Don't wait till later because later's too late. Be prepared now to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. Originally, you know, in, in, in decades past, it was very popular to use this verse to talk about something called apologetics. Apologetics just means the ability to argue um, the validity of the gospel to talk about how many eyewitnesses there were and the prophecies that line up. And they're wonderful arguments. If you want to talk about those things, those are wonderful things. How do, how do people know that good is good and how do people know that bad is bad and how could we hunger for things and long for that they didn't exist and so forth. There's ways to talk about not checking your head at the door for the gospel, but that's not what this is talking about. The correct word there is not so much every man needs to be able to defend the gospel. The answer is more like every man needs to be able to answer for the gospel. So another way to talk about that is Christians are not called to be lawyers so much as witnesses. We're not called to have to be the judge. That's somebody else's job. I don't have to lawyer myself. I don't have to argue any of these things. I just have to live my life and be a witness, a witness to the hope, okay? And so this ultimately is the idea, even like for a, a special needs person, right, is a wit- could be a witness in the sense that this is all that it means. It does not mean, can you argue? I heard a preacher, how am I supposed to witness the gospel? My car's not clean. I'm like, what is going on right now? Like, Witness does not mean you have acumen or reputation. Right? It means, this is what it means. How do they walk so straight in a crooked world? That's what this means. It means that small fish or big fish or smart or checkered past or raised in Sunday school, born in the baptism pool. It doesn't matter, right? What he's saying is what's loud is when you walk straight in a crooked path, people ask questions. Not just when you seem good, but when you are good. When they see the 360. How many of you guys have ever had somebody gossip in front of you go, I'm not so sure if you're willing to talk that way in front of me about them that when you go to talk to that next person, you're not going to talk to me about me to them, right? That's the idea. When people see a 360, because they know how people work. People bring guns to knife fights. That's how people act. But Christ brought a cross to the fight, and he would never bring a weapon. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And what this passage is saying is that the greatest argument you have is not about seven days of creation or the justice of evil and how does evil exist and suffering in the world, what he's saying is the argument is your life. It's a straight life in a crooked world. That's what he's saying is the argument. And anybody can do it. Anybody can do it that is a child of God. People, people want to ask how about that. And so there's some intentional questions that I want to put up here. And I'm going to read the passage. And I see three intentional questions that Peter could give your small group or give you or think about. But he says, um, he says you should be ready to talk about the empty tomb, the hope of the gospel. And you should do that with gentleness and respect and have a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So there's three questions that I I saw, and they're they're just up there on, on the screen. And the first question that comes to mind is, when you give an answer for your hope, not a defense or an argument, but when you give an answer, is your hope connected to something your grandpa said or something that a preacher said, or something that makes sense in your head, or something that's worked a few times in your life, or is it connected to the empty tomb? Peter's preparing you and saying that when you face evil, and when you do good, people will ask questions. And when they ask questions, your answer doesn't need to be about C.S. Lewis. Your answer needs to be about the empty tomb, because people can sense your why. They can sense if your reason is yours or someone else's. They can sense if your reason is the means or the ends. They can sense if you just seem good, or if if you have the goodness of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit of goodness in your life, and he's saying, he's saying, necessarily, you should literally think about, don't think about the argument of why, you know, 
Christ could be raised in three days. Think about how you are going to explain how an empty tomb produces a good tip at a restaurant. Think about that. Consider, be ready. This is what he's saying. And that's a pretty, you know, intellectual concept. It doesn't, you know, it's just, it's just a pretty simple thing. The second thing that he says that you should be prepared for is to be able to reprove people, both in and inside of the church, in the name of the gospel, with gentleness and respect. And man, is that a fine wine of spiritual maturity <laughs> to create in somebody. Have you ever been corrected with gentleness and respect? And you thought, I didn't think that I had, I don't, I don't know exactly what to say about what you just said to me, but I think I just got corrected and I think I like it. Like I don't, most of the time, nine out of 10 times, if you correct me, I'm not gonna like it. But there's somebody that has come to you, right? And they've corrected you and you liked it. How did they pull that off other than the spirit of Jesus? And it's saying, well, they pulled it off because you have to be prepared to do it. You have to be ready in the moment to love your enemy. You have to be thinking about the kinds of questions you'll ask. You have to cultivate this fruit of the spirit inside of you, this garden in your heart, if you will, of how to correct somebody with gentle and respect because saying the truth without love is not really truth. As a matter of fact, you might even take it as a rule of thumb. Do not speak the truth until you love somebody. Even if you know something is true, saying truth without love is really a snare, so don't do it in the first place. If you know something is true, wait for the affections of Jesus to come over you before you ever dare open your mouth on it. It's doing more harm than good, truth without love, right? So gentleness and respect. And the last one, I think it might be the most important, is to have a clean conscience because some people, including you and me, will not have rejoicing but shame when the fog dies down. Have you ever brought a bomb to a knife fight thinking that they had a bomb and they didn't really have a bomb? You feel real stupid, right? Isn't there a shame? The things, sorry for the things I said when I was hangry and sorry for the things that I said when I thought you had a knife behind your back when you didn't. That feels awful. That's a, there's a shame that comes about that, that maybe there was somebody that was coming to Christ and your witness disturbed their their soil as they were walking towards Jesus because you thought, like as you read into the text message and you heard it the wrong way and you assumed that they had a knife so you brought the gun and now he says there's a shame that comes over our hearts when the fog dies down. He says it's always a good idea to do good. It's always a good thing to bring a cross to the knife fight because there's only rejoicing when you bring the cross. It's not confusing and it's never conditional. You bring the cross to every single fight that you ever enter and don't speak the truth until you have love, and love wash over you. And then, and then when the fog lifts, because it always does, because fear is just manipulation, it's just a tactic of the enemy, it's just a trap, and it's never going to get you anything or give you anything that you don't already have, then you'll have rejoicing instead of regret. And so ultimately, I'll just read this uh, last uh, blessing over us as we uh, kind of conclude and, and come for worship. But uh, it's from Mother Teresa. Have you been thinking about it, maybe? Have you heard this thing before? I think it's a great blessing. Um, and I think the name of the blessing is it's, it's, um, it's not about them. And that's maybe the message that I'd want to say to you. It's not about them. It is about you. And it is about the Father. And it is an opportunity to give him praise in a way that you can up there. This is what Mother Teresa says. I think it's great words. I think Christ would agree. People are often unreasonable. Do you have kids in your life? You know, do you have neighbors in your life? Do you have, they're unreasonable. It's true. They're irrational. They're responding to their feelings and they don't make any sense. And they're not walking a straight line, but why should you be surprised? Nobody ever writes, walks straight lines except for the fruit of the Spirit. And they're self-centered, and they're talking about themselves. And it's always about them, and you, <laughs> they'll fall asleep if you start talking about anything but them, right? Forgive them anyways. This is what I think is the blessing this morning. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Anybody uh, ever been misunderstood here before? Have their words been twisted? They tell your story back to you in a way that you're like, wait, I didn't, I didn't say that. 
right? That's not what I said. Ah, don't worry. Be kind anyways. It's always good to do good. You know, it's a lighter yoke doing good. It's, it's, it's too expensive to lose your sleep over it. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and you will uh, gain some genuine enemies. As God does things in your life, it's not unusual. You're going to have all sorts of things coming towards you. Be faithful. Be fruitful anyways. Succeed anyways. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. You know, they'll call you Pollyannic and they won't take you seriously and they won't respect you and they won't, they'll just walk all over you. And then you go, well, that's what they did to Jesus. Be honest and sincere anyways. It's not naive to follow Jesus. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. That is a sad, true statement. We could spend a lot of time for somebody just to tear it down in one minute, but you shouldn't stop being wholehearted. It's not worth it. Keep creating. Keep moving. Keep stepping. Keep walking. Keep obeying. If you find uh, serenity and happiness, some may be jealous, but be happy anyways. The good you do today, it will probably be forgotten, and nobody will see it, and you will not get credit for it, but do good anyways, because the Father smiles at it. Give the best that you have, and it will never be enough. Christ is enough, but what we do is not enough, and, uh, but you should give it anyways. You should give your life. Uh, anyways, and in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyways. And so I'll close again with Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. And this is how Jesus would think would say it. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Don't give up. He sees you. He cares about you. Throw your cares on him because he cares for you. Do not give up. This is the work of the age, the gospel, the gospel work in the age because everybody returns evil for evil, but good for evil in the name of the gospel. Following Jesus in his example is always productive and always fruitful. So do it. Be right, you know, walk in righteousness as Jesus did, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely saw all kinds of evil against you because it's an opportunity to preach the gospel and because it pleases the Father. You, because of me, rejoice and uh, be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way as they persecuted the prophets who uh, were before you, they will persecute you as well. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.